Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome, everyone, to today's Commonwealth Club program. I am so delighted to be here. And uh, my name is Deborah Alvarez-Rodriguez. I'm the executive director of La Cocina, which is a food entrepreneurship program here in San Francisco that's incubated over 130 uh, food businesses for, that are uh, led by immigrant women and BIPOC women. So it is wonderful to be here, and uh, I think we're going to have an incredible time. So thank you so much. Uh, let me just say a, a couple of words. I want to just say a couple of words uh, uh, about La Cocina and, and why it's so connects to uh, what uh, Chef Waters is all about, because everything we do is about community building, collaboration, and finding pathways to economic freedom, liberation, and opportunity. So it's, it's so wonderful to be here uh, and in kindred spirits. Uh, let me, um, you know, I, I remember the very first time I ever went to Chez Panisse. I was thinking about that. I remember it so vividly. I remember how beautiful the food looked. And I remembered how incredibly tasty it was. And at that moment, it brought me back to my two-year-old self as I was putting out the napkins in my mother's Puerto Rican restaurant in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and so I thought, my goodness, what a full circle uh, moment this is for me here today and for all of us. So thank you very much. I want to share with you a little bit. I am, as I said, I'm, I'm uh, the ED at La Cocina, but most importantly, I'm so proud to be a member of the Board of Governors of the Commonwealth Club. Uh, this is my first year here, and it is uh, an extraordinary organization that I'm sure you will all agree with. And I also want to say a particular welcome to all of our members here, uh, at, uh, Commonwealth Club members. Uh, thank you for your continued support uh, as we start returning to in-person gatherings here at the, uh, in San Francisco. So thank you. You know, membership, uh, membership to this wonderful organization has many benefits. And one of the things I want to share with you right now is we are currently having a special promotion of 20% off membership until July 15th. So please, if you are not a member, find someone uh, from the front desk, someone that works here at the Commonwealth Club, and get yourself uh, a membership. Join this remarkable organization. You can also just go onto our website, commonwealthclub.org, uh, and join us as well. So the time has come. Uh, there are just a few reminders that I want to share with you as we get started. Uh, the first one is to please silence your cell phones uh, throughout the entirety of this program, and also to please stay masked. Uh, it was at the bequest of our speakers here to please stay masked throughout the entire program. Uh, we also uh, want to share with you that if you have questions uh, for Chef Waters uh, uh, during this conversation, please, there are going to be cards Please uh, request a card. Our staff will get you a card. Uh, fill out your question, and then those questions will be handed over to Will, our moderator for today. Um, so there'll be an op uh, plenty of opportunity to interact through those questions. Also, for all of you who are joining us online, please know that you can uh, text your question to the chat on, uh, your, on the YouTube channel. So please join us for that as well. Um, Following this program, Ms. Waters will uh, be uh, outside here cop uh, with copies of her book uh, and signing it. So please, I encourage you to get her book. I got it. It's a fabulous book. Uh, read it and, uh, and take home a signed copy. Uh, now it is my pleasure, and it is a profound and deep pleasure, to introduce you to Alice Waters. Uh, 
Uh, Alice Waters, the legendary chef, restaurateur, and founder of Chez Panisse, and the author of What We Are, What We Eat, a slow food manifesto. We are what we eat, a slow food manifesto. Chef Waters is a celebrated longtime sustainable food activist and humanitarian. She is well known for pioneering uh, California cuisine and the farm to table movement here. She also founded, as many of you know, the Edible School Yard Garden and Kitchen Program at the Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School right here in Berkeley, California, where the students there have a real experiential experience of planting, harvesting, and preparing fresh, fresh food and fresh ingredients. It's a remarkable, it's a remarkable uh, program and organization that is really quite global, not just local. Ms. Waters, uh, you know, I still remember, I so vividly remember uh, uh, that first meal, as I said, uh, and, uh, that, and what I understood at that moment was that it was an act of, eating at Chez Panisse was an act of love and activism. Um, so with that, I'd like to turn it over to our, uh, the guest of honor, uh, Chef, uh, Chef uh, Waters. It is truly an honor and a pleasure to be here with you today. And we also have a fantastic moderator, William Rosenswig, who's faculty co-chair of the Berkeley Haas Center for Responsible Business, faculty director of the Sustainable Food Initiative, and an expert in social entrepreneurship and food systems education. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for having us here today. I'm Will Rosenzweig. I'm delighted. We are delighted to be together with Alice uh, in conversation to celebrate the publication of her newest book, we Are What We Eat. Uh, Alice and I have had the pleasure of co-hosting a very popular course at UC Berkeley the last seven years called Edible Education. It's open to students all across campus, and it's been videotaped for the last oh, seven, eight years. The class has actually existed for about 12 years. It was initiated with Michael Pollan's leadership, and um, it remains really a uh, a, a fundamental offering at UC Berkeley that attracts students from all across campus. And they learn about values, they learn about systems, and they learn about how to take action. And uh, so a core pillar of the course is really about values. And this book is Alice's Manifesto on Values. And values are what we care about. It's the mindset that we bring to how we see the world and how we participate in the world. And now more than ever with the climate crisis and the health disparities that, that have come so uh, into light during the pandemic, we see that food is really at the center of everything. So Alice, for um, you know, I also wanted to welcome, uh, before I forget, I, it's hard for me to see in the audience, but we have a, there, there we are, we have a special group of students who have traveled all the way from New York, part of the Food Education Fund Entrepreneurship Program, <laughs> which we just started yesterday at UC Berkeley, and it was such a pleasure to get to know them and to have them here with us. And so I hope you're going to write some really good questions <laughs> uh, for, for Alice today. Um, so for those people that really haven't had a chance, Alice, to know about 
how your values have been formed and inspired. Could you start, maybe bring us back to your days at UC Berkeley <laughs> and how those shaped your view? Well, I arrived at UC Berkeley in 1964. <laughs> I think that says everything. Um, I came there from, I transferred from Santa Barbara because I heard something was going on in yeah. Berkeley. <laughs> and in fact, it was. And then I heard Mario Savio speak. And I said, he's speaking for me. And I became very politically activated, shall we say. Uh, when I think back to my family, I had a very conservative father and a very radical mother. Uh, in fact, she was a communist in, <laughs> in college and uh, demonstrating uh, around the seamstress union and supporting it. I didn't know that really until uh, they ultimately came and moved to Berkeley. And uh, my father... Uh, was a very big help um, with Chapinese at the beginning. But Berkeley really changed everything for me. And I felt like we not only addressed the war in Vietnam and free speech, but we really talked about civil rights. And I really connected with all of that. And after I graduated, I decided to go to France. And maybe you know that story because I wrote a book about it, my memoir. Uh, but I felt like I'd never really eaten before. Uh, I had my first experience uh, in a little restaurant in France. I was supposedly going to a school at the Sorbonne in the, the course for French civilization. I can't even speak French, but <laughs> because I never went to class. <laughs> That's part of it. But I really took a course in French civilization. And it, of course, began with food. But it also began with the way people live their lives. Uh, at that time, in 65, they were, the kids would come home for school to have lunch with their parents. They'd have two hours to have lunch. Uh, people waited in line to get a baguette. I thought, what are they waiting in line for? Bread? And then I waited in line. And that taste, that taste of a hot baguette really won me over. But there was also something else going on in that line. is that people were talking to each other. And there were kids and there were old people. But, you know, maybe 20 minutes that it was worth spending that time. 
And, of course, the beauty of Paris was irresistible. And I just came back from that trip and said, I want to live like the French. And I knew it had to do with food first. Uh, And I really looked to see, you know, how I could find that taste and uh, wished that there were a, a farmer's market that I could go to because that was the way that I walked through the Latin Quarter right past that market every day. So all these beautiful fruits and vegetables. But uh, I also, I forgot to say that I had a wild strawberry, a fraise de bois, at a restaurant. And I, I tasted that, and it just was nothing like I'd ever tasted before. And I said, where do I get it? And they said, you have to go up in the woods. It's wild. You have to pick it right now. And it never occurred to me that that people did that and brought them to the market. And only at this one little moment in time. I love that story because it really illustrates you know, Joseph Campbell's archetypal call. You got the call. But you weren't going to school to learn about food, (laughs) right? And we were talking yesterday with the students here, and they're all going into college. And one of the discussions we had yesterday was, what should I major in? You know, what should I declare? And we were talking about how school wants you so early to declare your uh, intention and your exactly. your narrow uh, silo, but I just love that. Well, talk a little bit about what you were studying and how that came full circle. You were well. It was very interesting during the free speech movement because anyone who was part of that only wanted to take classes when there were professors who were part of the free speech movement. And uh, I decided to take Beethoven's symphonies (laughs) because that teacher was somebody very important to me. I probably never would have done that. And I just had my mind opened up. And I took a film course. I took all of these just... Uh, a mix and when I got back from France they asked me well what is your major and I said well I don't know Uh, I I took all these courses and they said well it sounds like it kind of fits into a a field major Uh, you, you started sort of 1750 to 1850 and they they gave me that and then of course at that time just a little side story is that uh, nobody went to pick up diplomas so I didn't know whether I graduated or not (laughs) and uh, later on they wanted to give me an award 
at the university. I, I think they had to print up a, a diploma for me. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> but uh, it, it was so important to have that big cultural experience of meeting people that were very different from yourself. And later I went back to Europe and I traveled in Turkey. I can't believe that I just was with a friend and we got a little car from London. We drove to Turkey and we camped out every place we went. And I never worried about, you know, something happening to me. I just was so pleased one time. We were camped in in Turkey, and we woke up in the morning, and there was a little bowl of warm milk under the flap of the tent. And I said, we have to find this person who left us this. (laughs) And we went down the road, and there was this young kid who was in charge of the gas station. And I said, did you leave this milk? He said, yeah, I did leave the milk. Would you like some tea? And I said, where's your family? And he said, they live in town, but I run the gas station. And he got pine cones, and he had one of those old uh, gas kind of containers that he put on the fire. He made a little pine cone fire, and he made boiled the water for tea. And I experienced this kind of hospitality that was so wonderful. Nobody ever asking anything in return from me just gave me whatever they had. And uh, I was actually studying Montessori education in London at the time, which became really the way that I think about teaching. And it's very important right now because Montessori wanted to create a pedagogy for teaching children that were, in her mind, sensorily deprived. They lived in the slums of Naples and in poor places in India. And she said, how are we going to teach these children? And she created this way of teaching by learning by doing. And the education of the senses... Our senses are our pathways into our minds. So she wanted these students to be able to see and to hear, to taste, to smell. And she created games for little children to play that opened up those senses, matching up smells in canisters, and I got very engaged with this. 
and came back to Berkeley and taught Montessori school for three to six-year-olds. And another important part of her education was about beauty. She wanted all of the equipment to be enticing for the students, to, to be very, very... Uh, I can't even describe... She had special materials made in Holland that you needed to purchase that were made by hand and all painted specially so that the children would fall in love with learning. And I used that same principle for Chez Panisse. I wanted everybody who came in to the restaurant to feel really good. I wanted there to be flowers. I wanted the music not to be too loud. I wanted the aroma to be good. I even sometimes, if you know me, I wrote a children's book about this, how we burned rosemary and walked around the dining room and upstairs and out front so that when people came to the door, they would say, ooh, this smells good. (laughs) But... But the important point that I'm rambling on here that I wanted to make is that we are living in a world where we are sensorily deprived as a nation. I mean, as a world, really. Where we're not touching anymore except our iPhones. (laughs) And we aren't really engaged with food in that way. And it's the reason that I wrote the manifesto was because I I wanted to know how we lost our democracy, how we lost our connection with each other in such a short period of time. I'm talking about from the end of World War II until now. What happened? And I came up with a theory that we changed the way we ate, and it changed our values. Well, in the book, you talk about uh, how big of an impression that Carlo Petrini the founder of the slow food movement, had on you. Um, I think hearing how these early experiences in your life shaped your values, your preferences, your view of the world, and how you you know managed to manifest that. Um, just, again, for the students' benefit, I think it's really interesting to see how you combined these passions of teaching and learning with food and hospitality and care and um, brought those together. So in the book, you first identify the fast food values, the values of our fast food culture. Um, And I 
we'll just name them off really yes. quickly. Please. Convenience, uniformity, availability, trust in advertising. We did a whole class on that one. Cheapness, one of your favorites. More is better and speed. And I have to tell you, because this morning I, I thought, oh, Alice is going to just roll her eyes at this. But I saw an ad for a new company called Neuro. Has anybody seen this? Neuro? Neuro is this little robotic car about the size of a little red wagon, and it's got a R2-D2 kind of hood on it. And it drives up and down neighborhoods delivering food to people's... So it, 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 it has all of this. It has the entire fast food culture on a robotic platform. Convenience, uniformity, availability, trust in advertising, cheapness, more is better, speed. And it masks, right? It masks all of the issues mm-hmm. that you care about. Who grew it? How was it grown? How did it get to you? Who was paid what to get it to you? <laughs> so one of the things we talk a lot about in edible education is we help the students develop this superpower to pierce through the veils of opacity that have been created in our, in our food system, uh, to develop the superpower of transparency and um, the slow food values that you outlined here, in contrast to the fast food values, and then maybe we can go in and elaborate, but you just talked about beauty. Of course, that's number one. Biodiversity, seasonality, stewardship, pleasure in work, simplicity, and interconnectedness. But I think they are all wrapped up in one that you and I love to talk about, and maybe... It's deliciousness, right? You, you, you have a special way of bringing people over to your side. How do you win people over, Alice? <laughs> well, I wish I could feed you all these ideas right now. Because I do think that it's very important um, to really connect around a table. And I always want there to be something on the table that's beautiful and edible. Because it really, I see that when people taste that in the conversation, that it almost opens their minds to what we're talking about. And it's so difficult to be in school, in your seats, and to, to not have that, that interaction. I wish all the time during the pandemic that we had had classes outside. Why didn't we take the kids to the beach or to the woods? And there's a whole movement, actually, um, around... Um, teaching that's happening in, nat- uh, in the woods. What's it called? The Forest School Movement. And it started in Germany about 10 or 15 years ago, but it's global. And I was surprised that there were in Rome, when I was in Rome, uh, 
there were 150 families on the wait list to bring their children to experience school in the woods. And they just played in the woods. These were young children. And now they have an ocean school, and they play on the beach. But it's so beautiful to count the shells (laughs) instead of the numbers in the classroom. And I know that in order to really address the serious issues of today and climate being at the top is to fall in love with nature. Because once you do, <laughs> you're, you know, because Will has the most beautiful garden around his house, an edible garden and just a seasonal garden. And it just feeds you in a way that nothing else does, really. But teaches you about relationship, yeah. certainly. Yeah. Um, I, I actually, I am the gardener. And one of the things that is really a joy is I get to bring bushels of fruit to class every week. Um, the students <laughs> enjoy it. Many of the students have never had a freshly grown orange, you know, picked right that morning. Um, so we're very blessed here in the Bay Area to have seasons that we can grow and produce food. But I think that um, what you're talking about, this appreciation for you know, embodied learning or sensory-focused learning is so important. I mean, it, I think there's a lot of research showing that our, um, our, our, our view of the world is changed most when we are experiencing it through all of our senses. Exactly. And as you've talked about, you know, feeding people ideas... Uh, also, the act of feeding is really establishing uh, important levels of trust. I mean, mm-hmm. having been in the food business for many, many years, I always had a sense of a heightened responsibility for, you know, when you feed someone something, they're entrusting their life to you. Yes. Um, and you have to take that very seriously. Mm-hmm. And it really... To me, that's what shaped a lot of my own thinking and experience in trying to be a responsible business leader. And I think through the the field of food, the world of food, we develop relationships and interconnectedness that you talk about in the book in ways that can change the way we think, the mm-hmm. way we act, and certainly what we eat. So maybe we could, could we... I want to talk a little bit about a few of these values, and then I'd really love to talk about, you know, one of our shared interests is is how are we going to take the learnings and experiences that you've had at Chez Panisse and make them (laughs) much more widely uh, available and appreciated? Well, I want to talk about the Edible Schoolyard Project because the, the confirmation that I have uh, felt since I started that project 26 years ago um, that has really activated me (laughs) is the school, Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School in Berkeley. 
um, the principal called me up and just asked if I, he knew I did something with gardens and he thought maybe I could come beautify the school. Well, I went over there and it was a school that was on 17 acres of land. It was built in 1921 and it was for 500 students, but it had grown to a thousand students, and it was teaching English. I mean, it had um, uh, 22 different languages. It was kind of a language um, uh, uh, school, too. And he said, um, you know, it's all sort of fallen apart because we had to bring in, you know, uh, those portable classrooms and, uh, you know, we couldn't feed everybody in the cafeteria so there's a snack bar down there. But these are teenagers, 6th, 7th and 8th graders. And I took one look at it and I said, I have the idea. It's We could make a garden over there and maybe that portable building there could be a kitchen classroom. Not to teach gardening or cooking, per se, but to teach all of the academic subjects. So you could do science and, and math and art and just about anything in the garden classroom, but at the same time, you're learning that math, you are smelling the flowers and seeing, calculating seeds and planting, and you're, you're engaged with all of your senses. And then in the kitchen classroom, it's the same, that you are cooking. But it might be that you're studying the history of the Middle East, and so you're making pita bread and greens, and maybe you're making hummus, and maybe you've grown some of the kale in the garden and you're using that in the kitchen classroom. But you're learning the history of the Middle East at the same time. And I've watched these thousand students over 26 years, and I know absolutely that if they grow it and they cook it, they all eat it. If they only grow it, and 90% eat it. So it really, really validated the whole idea of edible education. And the fact that we built a network and there are 6,500 schools in the network. Would you open that just so people can see what 6,500 schools look like in the network? Because it's in every state. Now, we did not start these schools. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On the, that side, we'll 
Here's the 6,500. <laughs> but that's only 5,500. <laughs> but these, these are human values that people want to teach to young people. And I have no idea what's going on in any of these schools, except that it's about stewardship of the land, it's about equity, it's about building community, it's about nourishment. That's what it's about. And some of these schools are beginning in kindergarten, and some of them are in college. And so we did start six schools around the country because I wanted to know, would this work in a hot place like New Orleans? Would it work in a cold place like upstate New York? Would it work work in Brooklyn? And it did, and in Los Angeles. And every school is different culturally, but they and they teach differently. But they all have the same spirit about them. And I believe that these students will all grow up being stewards of the land, learning how to cook for themselves, knowing what it is to live in a democracy and participate because they share the food at the table. And I don't know whether you remember your your middle school years, but I remember that the boys were over there <laughs> and the girls were over here, and that we never talked with each other. We never had that kind of conversation. And to see these teenagers all working to produce a meal together, to sit at a table and eat it, is so exciting. And I'd love to invite you all for a visit because we're going to be open for real, I think, in September. What I love about this, too, is the uh, fact that it was really a self-organizing system. You know, it, it was inspired by a model... But all of these people took yes. inspiration from what, from your model and then reinvented it exactly. you know, locally. Exactly. And it's so different than the kind of mindset or model that we have in our culture to want to scale the same exactly. thing up. That this scaled differently. It just scaled it, itself. It well, replicated. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Because nature doesn't scale, nature replicates. So what you did was you created a very organic... Oh, there's that word. I knew I was going to get that in. Uh, Regeneratively organic. (laughs) Did someone say organic? I always... When I introduce Alice in the first class, I always think of her as... She's she's been the standard bearer of the organic movement and really held the space for that type of agriculture. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, too, and your relationship to the farmers and well, how that I absolutely your... want to talk about that because <laughs> I have a big plan. And uh, I think that the experience both of the Edible Schoolyard 
and Shepanese over 50 years has prepared me to think in the biggest possible way. Because when Shepanese opened, I thought that somehow we were going to have food that tasted like it tasted in France. I don't know what I was thinking, but I thought I would be able to find that. When in fact, I couldn't find those ingredients. And there wasn't that whole farmer's market movement back then. And so we had a friend who knew farmers, and she said, I'll be a forager for you. I'll go out and find people who would like to sell food directly to Chez without a middleman. And I said, I'd love that. And this was Sibella Krause, who was very important, starting the Ferry Plaza Farmer's Market. But she went out, and she found people that were willing to bring us all of their peaches, like a Frog Hollow farm, during that season. And I got taste. And I realized that I was at the doorsteps of the organic farmer's market. I mean, the organic movement in the state of California. That I was meeting all of these amazing people. And then uh, I, we were going directly to them. And... Uh, picking up the food and bringing it to the restaurant. And so the farmer didn't have to sell us wholesale. They sold us at the real cost of the food so that they could take care of the farm workers and take care of all the, the uh, you know, the farming issues that are so important to the, especially the organic farm. And ultimately, um, uh, my father actually went with my mother. She, um, they decided to go to Davis and ask for all the farmers that were within one hour of Chapinese so that we could find someone who we could work with on a regular basis. And they spent eight months going around. <laughs> they had, came back with three people, but they said there's only one that's crazy enough to, to work with Chez and that was Bob Kennard. I don't know whether you know him, but he's kind of an amazing farmer who was regenerative from the very beginning. We didn't know what that word meant, but he said, my carrots are... 20% more nutritious than anybody else's. And I, I laughed. And they were tasty. But he said, the way that I am allowing the soil to be all that it can be is giving that carrot all the nutrition it needs to be 
the best for your immune system, for everything that's happening. And it can even repair your immune system. (laughs) And so we fell in love with Bob, and we brought back all of our scraps to Bob, brought all the vegetables back to Shepanese. And he has been there for 35 years, and now his son has taken over the business, his son Ross. But it's been a real lesson to all of us at the restaurant. It brought his values right through the kitchen door. And when we didn't eat something, he'd pull it out of his <laughs> the scraps that we sent, and he said, why didn't you eat that? And now he's sending us weeds from his farm, <laughs> purslane and nettles, and he says, make something of these. And so we started making nettle pizza, and let me tell you, the best huge pizza. success. Huge. You know, he was my mentor, too. No. And I don't know if I ever <laughs> know that. that. Yeah, no. he was my uh, mentor. And uh, at our garden, we have uh, 18 of the olive trees that he grafted that were this big. But oh. let me tell you a story, which is really funny. When I worked at Odwalla for a number of years, mm-hmm. and we had a very popular fresh carrot juice drink, and we uh, couldn't get enough carrots, so we went to Bob. We leased a piece of land near his farm, and he grew all of these carrots for us. And one day, I took my team from Odwalla up to the farm, and I remember this very vividly. I brought my daughter, who at the time was three years old, (laughs) which was about 25 years ago, and she was standing in front of me, and Bob had... The thing about Bob was he had the most amazing compost pile you've ever seen. I mean, his <laughs> compost was like gold. And my daughter was, you know, she was v- being very patient and watching, you know, him explain things. And we, he was standing in front of the compost pile and she was standing in front of me and she just took off and face planted into the compost <laughs> pile. She was like drawn to it like a magnet. And... <laughs> It was just really interesting. I mean, it was, it was kind of a spiritual moment for all of us. Well, Bob has definitely tried to feed people compost up there. At but farm. It's a magic ingredient, yeah. and it really makes you appreciate this cycle of mm-hmm. farming that he has exemplified and is now... Um, I think I'm really excited. I I spend a fair amount of my time trying to educate young farmers and help them, you know, thrive in, in, in the ways that, you know, you've exhibited with, with Bob. So where do you want to take this? The great thing about all of this is that you're not only eating food that tastes the best and that is the most nutritious, but it is pulling the carbon down and putting it in the ground where it belongs. Can you believe that we have a solution to all of these problems? And it's a delicious solution, (laughs) and we are not practicing it. I mean, getting to know the farmers and the people that grow our food has been 
the greatest education for me to go out to meet Mas Masamoto. When you told me this morning, you, it's peaches for getting ripe <laughs> on the beech tree it gave you. I was jealous. I was hoping it was going to bring me a peach. Thank you. But this is something that is so important. And I guess I, because time is of the essence, that I should tell you the big plan that I'm hoping will happen. And that is that our public school system adopts this way of supporting the people who are taking care of the land and teaching us the values that we need to live on this planet together. What if the public school system purchased all its food locally, seasonally, from the regenerative, organic farmers, ranchers, fishers, all of the people, the people who make the bread, the tortillas, everything from those people who are doing the right thing. We could change farming and education overnight. I mean, truly, (laughs) because it's... Something, I mean, we all go to school, or should. We all eat. These are two universal things. And to think that we are feeding children food that's making them sick. One in four children is going to have diabetes. And we're continuing to feed children fast food. But it is something that, I mean, the economic stimulus of this idea is kind of unimaginable for every state in this union. Every state. And to think that only 60 years or so ago, that is how we ate. I lived in New Jersey, <laughs> you know, and we didn't have corn and tomatoes except in the summer. We ate differently at every time of the year. It's the way we've been eating in the world since the beginning of civilization, eating locally, farming, regeneratively, <laughs> it's it, organically, and I have to say that that rhythm that I live my life by, that's orchestrated by nature, is so pleasurable to me. Now, people say, oh, we don't have any season in California. And we deeply do. We only have tomatoes. Maybe we have them a little longer than New Jersey. <laughs> and, but it's a short period of time. When it's there, it's there, and then they're gone. And then you go on to the next thing and anticipate. I'm thinking about persimmons in the fall. I'm thinking about fall food. 
And then the winter, the idea that California has everything all the time is a myth. It's only in season we're getting things that people think are coming from California or they're grown in Mexico or grown in China. But we are not eating seasonally. And it's so beautiful to eat seasonally because you will never eat ripe food unless you just almost pick it off the tree and eat it. You know, one of the one of the challenges that certainly uh, City of San Francisco is experiencing, our campus at UC Berkeley, there's a lot of people that aren't getting enough to eat. Um, we were talking yesterday. There's about twenty percent of the students at UC Berkeley that are food insecure, and you know the students are always asking you. You know, it's like, well, I, I, how do I participate? You know, organic seems to be so much more expensive than conventional food or packaged food how do i how can i eat you know the way you want to live your <laughs> life alice on my budget i love that question <laughs> uh, i think again that since the beginning of civilization <laughs> that meat and cheese have always been used as a condiment they are not you know Maybe a special occasion you have something with, uh, you know, when you slaughter that pig, maybe you have that once a year and you make things from it. But we don't know how to cook anymore. And that is the key to eating affordably. It really is. And it's also learning what things are extremely nourishing and affordable. And it, that, for me, is always about seasonality. And I'm, I'm changing my lettuce with the season. I'm chicories in the winter. I think they're so beautiful. But in the spring, I'm thinking about the little rocket, and I'm going into the summer, and I'm seeing the heads of little gems and going into the fall. It's kind of a chicory. But this is when you are buying food in season, it's always less expensive. It's when you are buying food out of season that it becomes really expensive. I've just made a cookbook which will come out next year it's a school, sort of school lunch book. And every picture is a meal that fits into the USDA reimbursement. Every meal in it. And they're meals from all around the world and have been tasted and tested by teenagers at Martin Luther King Junior Middle School. And what is that number? Do you remember? Is it like $2.70? It's even like less that? than that. It's, it's really an amazing <laughs> But I bought number. all the food retail organic for the book. And I could fit into the reimbursement. But just imagine, really, if the federal government were to have the initiative 
to support the schools, uh, have the schools support the farmers. I call it school-supported agriculture. Like community-supported agriculture, you are knowing the people who are feeding you. And you want them to have what they need. You want to eat everything that they grow. I'm sure there are questions (laughs) that people have there. I don't mean to. (laughs) But I am looking to the University of California, not just because I went there (laughs) and I know what potential it has for making something very important go out into the world, across the country, really, and around the world. If they were to take this idea of procurement and local procurement, just think of the economic stimulus for the state of California. We have a new initiative at Berkeley that kind of came out of our work at Edible Education. One of my former students who was getting her Master's of Public Health uh, was in Edible Education and took another class of mine called Food Innovation Studio. And she said, you know, Will, I came to Berkeley to study plant-based nutrition uh, and the plant plant-centric food system. And the reason that was important to her is because that's one of the top ways that we can address climate change is to shift to plant-centered diets. <laughs> and, um, and she said, but I can't find any classes specifically on that at UC Berkeley, of all places. And I challenged her. I said, well, why, why don't you, for your project in my class, make design the class of your dreams. Mm-hmm. So she did this. She worked so hard on it. And when, you know, a student is passionate about something, what they can do is miraculous. So she created a course, which we call Plant Futures. We ran it in January of 2021 during the pandemic. And mm-hmm. because it was during the pandemic, we had to put it online. Well, not only did 300 Berkeley students sign up for it, but we had 250 students from around the country and world sign up for it and took it. And to make a long story short, this one, this initiative that Samantha Derrick took has turned into an initiative now, the Plant Futures Initiative. I have my plant futurist pin <laughs> on. But like taking, a, you know, taking the lead from you, we already have 30 campuses around the country that now have Plant Futures chapters led by students and faculty champions. And what they're working on and what we ran a a program last uh, semester was to work with the chef and the procurement people at UC Berkeley to figure out how to get more plants on the menu, how to get more local seasonal plants on the menu. So to me, picking up on your idea that you fed to us Getting the students to advocate for this, getting the students to design is so much part of the change. Well, I feel like if we don't do something dramatic to address the big issues, that the students are going to demonstrate for be there. We need to make big change. 
and talk about it. I mean, I just thought, well, you know, why, why can't the Bidens plant a garden on the front lawn of the White House? <laughs> why the back? <laughs> why not plant food regeneratively and give it to people who are hungry in Washington, D.C.? Why not? I remember when Michelle Obama made her garden. I was in Rome then, and it was on the front page of the newspaper in Rome. And everybody talked about her doing that. Why can't we have that good news? I've always wanted to plant a garden at the crescent of the University of California as you enter. Why not have an edible landscape? Why not grow food? for students who are hungry at the University of California. And there are 200, I believe, and 65,000 acres of land owned by the University of California. It was a land-grant university. And maybe they could give some of the land to people who wanted to grow food for the University of California. I mean, it's endless where this could go. And because the university could pay the real cost to all the people that were producing food without the middleman, everybody would want to come and sell food to the UC system. And if UC made a path, K through 12 could follow. But it would all, you know... All of the ideas of plant-based are needed to, to really make the uh, food at schools delicious and what it really needs to be. And fundamentally, the school has to start looking at food as a human right <laughs> and part of the commonwealth as opposed to yes. a profit center. <laughs> Or business yes. area, right? So that it's, that fundamental shift in just their economic model would be required. But I so appreciate that you continue to advocate for this and spark people. And Alice is, a, for the students here, Alice is just a tremendous example of someone who is persistent. Um, and she <laughs> Unrelenting. Also, she, um, she also... Um, She's persistent. She doesn't give up. And she finds the people who have uh, influence and power, and she makes sure that they get to eat a meal with her so she, they, so she can make sure she, they hear the whole story direct from her. <laughs> but just in the last 10 minutes, I want to get okay. to some of the questions, and I'm going to combine a couple of them. But one person asked where the name Chez Panisse came from, and then what is your favorite dish at um, Chez Panisse, what's your favorite meal? How does it make you feel? And then I'll lump one other question into that is, um, how do we support slow food culture in places where fast food culture is most prominent? Yes. Great questions. Um, well, the word Panisse is the name of a character in the films of Marcel Pagnol. I have a great love uh, for film. And my good friend at the beginning of Chez Panisse 
was Tom Luddy, who started the Telluride Film Festival right about at, at the same time. And he took me to see the Paniol Trilogy, which um, is a beautiful story about the south of France um, in the 30s and 40s, uh, which is when Paniol was making the films. And they were all about camaraderie and, and a lot about uh, people leaving the land and coming into the cities and being lost without their connection to food and friends and, and nature. And I loved them so much that I thought, well, I have to name the restaurant after one of the characters. And I named my daughter Fanny after one of the characters too. But Pe- Penny's was a beautiful word, and it means bread of Nice. It refers to a little pancake that they make in Nice. But I didn't know that at the time, and I just liked the sound of it. <laughs> so did Tom. And what's your favorite meal when you Well, get to I don't have a favorite. I have to say, right now, it's apricot galette at Chez Panisse. <laughs> Don't miss it. And the apricots are in season right now. And I am just such a seasonal person. I can't think outside this moment in time where I'm longing for a tomato, but I haven't tasted a great one yet. But when they come, I eat them breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, that was that third question. How... Should someone uh, promote slow food culture in a fast food culture society? Well, by eating together with family and friends, by asking where everything came from or looking. I always go, because we're lucky to have farmer's markets all around the city and in Berkeley, And I go to the farmer's market first. I always go there. And I think that, you know, one of the amazing things that happened at Chibonis happened around bread. And you may know this story, but um, Steve Sullivan was going to UC Berkeley, and he was a busboy at Chibonis way back in the beginning. And he heard me complaining about the bread. And he said, I'm going to do something about this. And he read my favorite bread books, and he started making baguettes for us uh, at, in his dorm room. <laughs> and then he'd bring them. And I'd say, oh, it's too crusty, or it's this or that. And then he finally brought a fantastic one. I said, okay, you can make them for Chibonese. And he would come early in the morning and use all the ovens. Then I finally said, get your own bakery. And if you do, I'll buy everything you make. And one of the questions is, where do you recommend you can get a good baguette in the door? <laughs> well, it's definitely... Uh, what did Acme, that become? But, uh, but Acme Bread Company yeah. uh, 
expanded, and they got connected with a whole group of people who cared about Fred around the country and where the flower was coming from. And it's, it's, there has been a real bread revolution over the last 20 years across this country. And I do think that bread is one of those, you know, sort of, you, once you have a loaf of great bread, you go back. And it's a way to open your mind to all food. And I love that about it. And if, you know, a little bakery in every town uh, my sister uh, was living in upstate Michigan, and her husband said, you know, I don't want to live in, you know, I don't want to write anymore. I want to make bread. And he came and learned from Acme, and he took the idea, and he opened a bread bakery up there in Michigan. But it's that, you know, in a way, that easy. And that pleasurable. Can you imagine having work that you love? And this is something that Will and I connect with a lot because businesses should be built around a set of values. And no one should be ever forced to work competitively and an Amazon warehouse without windows, without any place to sit and have lunch. I mean, what are we doing? All day long to spend two hours commuting. Well, let me tell you, anybody who wants to grow food, and we start, we originally bought a lot of food who, from people who grew it in their backyards. We had somebody who grew French breakfast radishes, and we would trade meals at Chez Panisse. But it's so gratifying. And that whole Victory Garden movement that was started to grow enough food to feed, you know, ourselves while we were sending so much to Europe during World War II turned out to be uh, a, a, a movement that has so much value and worth, and all of the pamphlets that the government printed are still there <laughs> for well, how to grow a vegetable garden when it's freezing. Well, Alice, it, it's always a pleasure <laughs> to bask in your your values and your worldview and your um, wonderful ideas about how to make the world better for everyone. And uh, thank you for being with us in person. And those of you that are with us online, please uh, visit the commonwealthclub.org website for more information or a taping of this program. And thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. 
If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.